This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is called Reweaving Landscapes. And I'm going to get us started by setting the scene a little bit. I want to remind us that the earth, this place that we call home, is by its very essence a fluid organism. Back in the 1970s, something pretty interesting happened. What was then considered a very revolutionary idea, I'd say that today this idea is um, a lot more commonplace. But back then, it was revolutionary, and a group of scientists observed the planet. They observed all of its feedback loops, these dynamic ribbons of processes and living organisms. And they said, the way that the Earth produces organic and inorganic life, these processes and these entities, they're not discrete. They're not disconnected from each other. The biosphere, the evolution of life forms, create things like the stability of temperatures, like the salinity of the oceans, oxygen, erosion, weather patterns, nutrient flows, and so forth. And taken together, all of these processes create a self-regulating, holistic system. And it's the system that maintains and perpetuates the conditions for life on the planet. So in a way, the conditions for life create more conditions for life. This was called the Gaia theory, named after the Greek goddess of the earth. And the more we keep learning about the world, the more that we see this to be true. Now, this fluid, dynamic Gaian organism needs space, and it needs wide landscapes like a canvas upon which to paint its life. On this canvas, the movement of animals and wildlife functions somewhat like blood cells, their movements and migrations carrying nutrients across the planet, from the depths of the oceans up to crystalline mountain forests. And these movements churn up soils that feed carbon cycles, that spread seeds, that create beneficial disturbances in ecosystems for new species to thrive. From this image emerges a term called landscape connectivity, and it's this that we'll be discussing today. It's intuitively easy to grasp. It says that nature needs linked, connected landscapes in order to function properly just like our own bodies need healthy connections between our various organs and cells to keep us alive. <sighs> and so enter roads. <laughs> roads are concrete slices across these natural riverine flows that the landscape and all of its inhabitants would want to take. Roads disrupt migration corridors. They fragment groups of species, which leads to genetic isolation and population collapse. Roads are often a complete barrier to any form of organic movement. They are indeed the single most destructive element that contributes to the process of habitat fragmentation. Imagine, right, that in Brazil, 95% of the rainforest lost over the previous decade 
was within five kilometers of a legal road. If you watch these roads from above, they spread like creeping spider webs of illegal secondary and tertiary roads, permitting encroachment where before there was none. And then there were the battles fought last years over some of the remaining jewels of old growth forests in the world, in the Tongass region in Alaska. And this was also over the building of roads and what this building of roads would harbor for the last enclave of a protected refuge. Not only this, but every day, millions of individuals of all species are killed on roads in the US and globally, and millions of collisions between vehicles and large animals cause several hundred human deaths at a calculated cost of $8 billion annually. And yet, of course, I use roads, we all use roads on a daily basis. And the road on which we travel is unlikely to cross our minds consciously as a source of any of the above. And so, as we whiz through landscapes, it is easy to forget about the inhabitants and ecosystem that make their livelihoods on either side of the road. And yet, some humans have made it their life's work to try and remedy this invasive infrastructural incursion. In places as diverse as Borneo and Brazil, Nepal and Alabama, designers and urban planners are finding ways to relink long-severed ecosystems and to provide safe ways for creatures to cross roads. The structures they build are called wildlife crossings. I find them fascinating. They can be overpasses or underpasses, structures that connect trees like rope ladders for monkeys, squirrels, and reptiles, or even something very creative like glide poles laid out in a series of steps for flying creatures like flying squirrels. All sorts of crossings exist. And they enable animals to roam in their natural habitats without human contact and without having to wait to dash across gaps in traffic and risk a deadly collision. Cameras placed in the crossings have shown the cutest videos of animals teaching their young how to use the crossings. And studies are now showing that these crossings are very effective in improving genetic diversity and reducing collisions by more than 90%. So they work. Thankfully, governments are catching on. The EU, European Union, has a comprehensive defragmentation project where across all of Europe, above roads and under roads and railway lines from northern Sweden to eastern Romania, animals like salamanders and brown bears are now able to cross roads safely. And in the US, Congress has recently created a wildlife crossings pilot program which is the first ever dedicated federal funding for wildlife crossings. And they've launched a competition with grants for ideas. So how can we even begin to think about designing wildlife crossings? And what are the implications of such interspecies design? Today, we're speaking to some of the stars of the scene, Nina Marie Lister and Jeremy Guff, who met in the founding days of an organization called ARC, A-R-C. ARC is a partnership of several organizations working together to facilitate new thinking, new methods, and new materials for wildlife crossings. They launched the now very iconic 2010 International Wildlife Crossing Infrastructure Design Competition, which engaged deeply innovative design teams to create the next generation of crossings. Jeremy is a trustee of the Woodcock Foundation and an ARC founding sponsor. Nina Marie is the graduate director of the School of Urban and Regional Planning in Toronto Metropolitan University, where she also leads the Ecological Design Lab and has led Safe Passages, which is a research project with five partner institutions in Canada and the US. She's also hosting a series of courses at the Harvard Graduate School of Design called Wildways, which advance the cutting edge of design thinking as it relates to wilderness, wildness, and the wild. 
redefining wilderness to grapple with the radical interconnectedness of nature and culture. And so now over to our conversation. Nina Marie and Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on Life Worlds today to speak about uh, wildlife crossings and designing for other species. It's such a pleasure to have you both. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Alexa. Lovely to be here. So to kick us off, um, I'll, I'll maybe start by asking you, Jeremy. I was reading in some of the, the literature, either it was on your website or associated websites, that right if we start from this premise that roads may well be the single most destructive element in the fragmentation of habitats, it seems to me that solving for this problem can have immense systemic repercussions for nature, for humans, for other species. And it seems to me that people should know a lot more about wildlife crossings than they do, and they should have them on their radar, almost as a new category of climate or natural ecological infrastructure. Um, we read sometimes about the carbon potential of animals, which I think is very objectifying, but it's true that nature and ecologies are also a big part of the carbon and climate conservation conversation. And as you say, Jeremy, today you're in, surrounded by wildfire smoke. So how prevalent is knowledge about these crossings in society? And is this is the dissemination of this knowledge part of the origin story of ARC? Okay, yes. To your last question, it is a part of the story of ARC. And how present is the knowledge? Um, I think it's very present um, in the sense that, you know, everyone who uses a road um, has an experience with wildlife on the road. Absolutely everyone. I have never met anyone who said, I never saw a wild animal on the road. I never saw roadkill. I never had an experience where I, you know, hit or nearly hit an animal on the road. It is that prevalent. So even if a person doesn't spend a second in a national park, never goes bird watching, you know, reports not to pay attention or care about nature, they'll experience it on the road. Certainly part of the reason why I got behind um, starting a wildlife crossing competition, and which, uh, you know, competition that eventually became the organization we now know of as Arc Solutions, was to um, provide, you know, practical solutions, um, mitigation structures for wildlife so that nobody had to die either on the human or the animal side um, when they interacted on the road. But the communication part was critical just because of that reality. So if people are going to see animals, roadkill, et cetera, on the road, they're going to see crossings, particularly overpasses. And so the association is suddenly going to become remarkably clear. Oh, my gosh, I've had this experience. There's a solution. And there is this thing that is mutely telling me in a way that I've never heard it before or understood it about connectivity and the need for animals to move through the landscape and over obstacles such as roads. Something that I find incredibly interesting in how, how you both described your work and the work of Arc Solutions and the, um, the experiments that you've run is that you sort of call them learning laboratories or living experiments. Can you speak to what that means? So why are wildlife crossings, why is road mitigation a living laboratory? It's a living laboratory for two reasons. Uh, one, when you install any kind of road mitigation, you need to monitor to ensure that the species for which the mitigation has been designed are using it, and if not, who is? Uh, and that's an ongoing experimental method uh, for the ecologists who study where to place crossings and the target species intended. So they are ecological experiments. They're ecological research in motion, if you like. They're also applied science in that we understand through mitigation that these are very successful. There's, it's one of the best studied, I would say, and, and 
best statistical results we have is that we know when cited correctly, wildlife mitigation structures, so overcrossings, undercrossings, when these are cited correctly for the appropriate target species using exclusionary fencing, that means uh, structures to guide animals to the crossings, they're over 95% successful. That's an incredibly robust number. And we know that because of monitoring and because of evaluation. So in that sense, mitigation structures are uh, studied. They're part of an experimental set of methods. Perhaps a more evocative answer and storytelling uh, thread, if you will, is that wildlife crossing structures, they capture the public imagination. They're, they're very much structures of hope. And they show in very visible, tangible ways how wildlife move. Even if you cannot see an animal that is too small for the speed at which you're moving or uh, too slow for you to observe in a particular way, those crossing structures are monitored. And by sharing who is moving, whether it's trackpads or cameras or data on a website, there's ways that, there are many ways of communicating how these structures become living laboratories and that they share the stories of movement over, under, and around us, sometimes by creatures that are hidden in plain sight. And so for us, it's a very important part of sharing what is more than an applied research project, but very much one of the public imagination and a relationship with nature. You know, Nina, just before Jeremy answered that question, this reminds me, um, I was reading one of the New York Times stories in the subject, and I was reading the comments. And uh, one of the it was interesting to read the comments because many people spoke exactly to what you just mentioned, you know, these structures of hope, but also how they illuminate these invisible lives that are so close to our own that we don't necessarily come into contact with every day and pictures of species becoming friends and crossing together, whether or not that's what actually happened doesn't matter. I think the the evocation of those life worlds is really compelling. And, and one of the comments I pulled aside to mention today was um, a fellow who wrote, there should be a TV channel or two that streams relevant highlights from Animal Crossing webcams. I could watch these clips all day. Donations and ad revenue generated by the channel could, could help pay for and maintain these crossings. So just sort of um, highlighting that I, I think it's, it's very true what you're saying there. Yeah, that's certainly been our experience. Of course, the internet is full of animal friendship memes and they're no stranger <laughs> to uh, wildlife mitigation strategies. I mean, I, I'd also offer that this is research that has been ongoing for 20, 30 years in some places. And you asked initially um, what the state of awareness is. At least that's how I interpreted the question. And Jeremy, I think, provided a very authentic and grounded response that this is in the domain of every person who has ever used a road. Everyone has seen wildlife on roads everywhere, actually. So it's not invisible at all, actually, but we have socially and culturally made it invisible by accepting that roadkill is a part of everyday movement, when in fact, if you step back from it, it does not have to be that way at all. In fact, you know, most of our conversations with research scientists, artists, engineers, architects, landscape architects, activists, environmental managers, all of those reveal that there's a kind of stunning acceptance of death on the road as somehow the cost of modern society's movement. And yet, at the same time, there's a deep sadness about it. Most people, when asked, are actually deeply upset at running over an animal, whether it's small or large. Of course, there, there's the obvious concern of um, human safety as well, where we seem to get traction on this research is when we understand that human mortality and wildlife mortality are 
connected, particularly when large bodied creatures, um, you know, are hit by our vehicles. So that's been the, the premise for some of the more recent work is to recognize that we all need to get where we're going safely. And there are very good, well-known ways to mitigate roads for wildlife safety and, and also, frankly, for the reweaving of habitats on either side of roads to reconnect what we have severed, reconnect what we have fragmented. And these structures can be much more than a service technology. They can actually be another surface, another landscape, another place um, of interest. And that's part of the ARC origin story, which maybe Mer- Jeremy would wish to speak to more. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the living laboratory thing is a really good concept. And um, it's something that's that goes back, again, to the origins of ARC, because, um, you know, my other job is, um, is the director of a conservation program for a foundation. And in that capacity, you know, we co-funded with a number, a number of other uh, private funders, as well as Parks Canada, uh, the monitoring of the effectiveness of what is the largest system of crossing structures anywhere in the world, which is in Banff and the other mountain parks in the Canadian Rockies. That's 17 plus years of research um, that was done to conclusively prove that you had a reduction in wildlife vehicle collisions on the Trans-Canada Highway of upwards of 95%, um, and that you had the full suite of species that inhabit that area using that crossing system to move um, on it, you know, not just on an individual level, but on a genetic level, enough individuals moving across that you're getting effective gene flow. Um, which is one of the huge costs to fragmenting a landscape, which I'm sure you know. So that to me was a really, really interesting part. I mean, people tend to think of parks as places that you go to experience uh, the wild, to experience species, and, um, you know, as places where wildlife can be conserved in a landscape that's otherwise um, you know, not protected and um, largely hostile. And those things are all true, but the laboratory aspect of parks is really interesting to me. And it hasn't really been uh, promoted enough, in my view, uh, by the parks themselves. The fact that, you know, they had this protected landscape on each side of a highway and were able to, which, you know, created a reduction in variability. And then were able to put in a, you know, an ex- a series of structures and really to experiment with those structures, the combinations, the types, et cetera, to some degree, um, was, was very exciting and, um, you know, active as that, as that living laboratory and still can. And, you know, what ARC, I think, adds to that is uh, a much more dynamic approach to how you can actually respond to the needs of the client, which is wildlife, um, with, with a different, with, you know, much more exciting designs um, for wildlife structures and other solutions for them. That's so interesting, Jeremy, that you describe the, the client as the wildlife, because you have these two clients. You obviously have the human clients and the other species as clients. What's, what, what have you guys found is different when you're designing for other species? What's different about building a bridge for wildlife and, and how you have to think and who you have to be and all of the competitions you've worked with and the people you've worked with? Like what have been patterns in terms of how to think in this way? Well, let's just say first that, you know, to the research questions, we know these wildlife crossings work because we have primary field research through the many partners um, of Arc Solutions and my lab and our colleagues and so on who provide uh, data that are very site specific. So the science is not the problem. And I'd say that you know when we have as good robust data as we do, there's another problem, which is the political and social one. If wildlife crossings work, why aren't there more? 
Why aren't they everywhere? Why are they not embedded in policy? And of course, that's a, a question of uh, political will. And we've spent the last six years in partnership with ARC through my lab undertaking federally funded research on an integrated planning approach, which understands that there's no single agency in charge. No single agency looks after the movement of wildlife or safe passage, as it's come to be called across most of North America. And that really goes to the heart of how we think about wildlife moving across roads. And if we simply view them as an obstacle to traffic, that's in the domain of one particular agency, potentially highway engineers. If, on the other hand, we think about wildlife as beings whose habitats have been severed, disconnected, restricted, then we have a very different way of understanding the movement of wildlife and the reasons for, for moving across landscapes, which are for breeding, feeding, foraging, thriving, and frankly, flourishing. That's a different way to think about wildlife. And one of the things we found perhaps more successful is engaging a very diverse group of both professionals, applied professionals, beyond the, the traffic engineer, uh, thinking about these structures as architectural, as landscape, architectural, as ecological living structures themselves worthy of investment, and then the creatures themselves as not only individuals, but communities and populations. And that does require a very different way of approaching a design solution. We think about who sees color, what types of color they can see. Can humans, for example, see certain colors as iconic, others as muted, and wildlife may not be able to recognize the same colors we do, or maybe they perceive very differently. So this encumbers a very different suite of research types. And frankly, the types of questions that we ask lead us to different design solutions. Overall, overall it's a matter of a very interdisciplinary and arguably transdisciplinary set of perspectives that produce uh, the widest set of options for design, most of which, frankly, are not in the Federal Highway uh, Manual for Construction. So that brings us to a slightly different set of application problems. Yeah. And, you know, I'd add to that, that, you know, very, very deliberately, uh, Ian Marie and I and others at ARC talk about wildlife as, as the client, um, because that's a kind of a fascinating way of, of, of thinking about wildlife and changing the human relationship to it. It's much more equal. In fact, you're arguably, if you're the client, you, you know, you're the one that uh, the other is trying to serve, which, you know, has not particularly been our our relationship with uh, with nature to date, in my view, is much more like you know they're kind of wards of the state or something. These you know helpless um, and slightly unable creatures that you know we have to take care of or not or you know move out of the way. So I really really like both how the requirement to design, the requirement to build infrastructure, and um, the requirement to change the relationship as you build responsibly to the needs of, uh, of the client have really, you know, changed our relationship or, or our, our means by which we can change uh, our relationship to nature. Uh, there's so much that I find that's really exciting about wildlife crossings that just kind of leverages well beyond the functional connectivity that they provide. Have you found um, a change in the architects, designers, students that you've worked with as a result of having to take this kind of multi-species perspective, you know, as you know, you say, it's the difference from, you know, obstacle or sort of nice to have, or let's put a bird bath here as actually beings who have 
just as much right to move and thrive in these landscapes. Does have you found that the sort of effect continues after the design competition and, and people just naturally begin to feel and think this way and how they continue to design or, or live? Yes. Working with students is generally a, a very hopeful activity. Um, as a university professor, that's you know, most of my time is spent uh, teaching students in the design disciplines or in the who are coming from the science uh, disciplines into an applied work that they are, are incredibly optimistic agents of hope usually. And I think they also carry a great sense of responsibility, uh, particularly at this moment. And for example, um, at the Harvard studio that I just finished teaching with my colleague, Chris Reed, this is a second in a series we've done called Wild Ways, which looks at not just mitigating roadways, but actually reconnecting landscapes across urbanized metropolitan regions, the last two series of which were in Los Angeles. And here, an investigation of wildlife movement is really a trope to think about how people are also separated by roadways, by redlining, by uh, economic opportunity. And by thinking about the movement of everything from, for example, the side-blotched lizard, the monarch butterfly, to the California condor, or red-tailed hawk, students are able to experience not only a different functional way of movement, of course, but a different way of being in relationship to the land and to urbanization. And it offers them, I would say, you know, to use an, an indigenous expression, two-eyed seeing, being able to understand multiple types of knowledge that help to solve a problem, and open-heartedness about, uh, with compassion and some sense of humility, rather than architects who typically are trained to see the landscape as white space into which they place, uh, you know, an, an edifice, a building, some con- kind of construction. Here, they're looking at the landscape as a source of life and that the best place for intervention is often uh, to begin by listening and looking and perhaps being able to sense movement in different ways, particularly when they're asked to understand how species, how and why species move in different ways to flourish, not just to barely survive, but to have a flourishing life. What does that require? And generally speaking, I have found that most students are incredibly not only open to these ways of thinking, being, and sensing, but also to changing their practices, in part because they, as I said, they, I think, are hopeful. And these kinds of designs offer hope at a time when there often doesn't seem to be much around. The, the most recent uh, field course I just did, I was spent a few weeks in the Galapagos with architecture students, undergraduate and graduate students from the um, Syracuse University and together with my colleague, Julia Zerniak, a course called Design for the Biodiverse asked architecture students to think about a small intervention through the least you could do in a short amount of time to reconsider a human intervention that perhaps created obstacles for wildlife. So whether it was a seawall and the way in which sea lions interact with the seawall or whether it was a cliff side uh, path and a park that intersected with the flight path and nesting of frigate birds. There were multiple ways, points at which students could engage with the landscape and wild creatures that they, if they were lucky, they could observe either from a distance or perhaps up close in the case of sea lions and into whose lives they could gain a perspective that 
probably will change the way they think about design in their practices uh, forever. And that's a very rewarding thing to do. And it is also, I think, a very tangible and important exercise in making our own hope. It doesn't lie out there somewhere. It is something you have to make. And designers are eminently good at understanding how to solve problems through the act of making and creating. And so in that way, this is a very hopeful exercise. I absolutely love that phrase, making our own hope. I just finished rereading um, Rebecca Solnit's um, Hope in the Dark, which uses this particular definition of hope I appreciate. And also, because, you know, it's interesting, like you mentioned um, before, things that we I would take for granted, like, oh, wait, but actually, would they be able to see this color? And I really, really enjoyed, um, from your wild ways, um, a fifth ecology for metropolitan LA, the issue, the publication that came out of it, I looked at online and, you know, seeing one of your students who took this abandoned freeway and turned into a sort of um, overpass into a snake sanctuary. Uh, and the, the um, how do you say it, the design project that looked at the condor. And, you know, they were looking at the sort of ideal wind patterns for soaring and the visibility where they could find carcasses and even these like stopover points. And so I think there's something so respectful and so healing about looking at what was here before, as you said, like no landscape was ever a white place with humans or other species. So what was here before, can we have profound respect and reverence for it? And then begin to embody that perspective in order to ourselves become more rich through the experience of expanding our sense of self and our sense of seeing in, in all these ways. Um, it's, I, I just, I just find it utterly beautiful to be quite honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad because I think that's certainly what students, uh, immerse themselves into this way of thinking and being, and, and I think is reflected in the, the outcome. That first series was a studio led by Chris Reed in tandem with a seminar, uh, that I led at Harvard last year. And it was actually Jeremy and Ark that were co-sponsors, uh, and to help initiate that studio. I think that's a really important point. Jeremy you might want to say a little bit about the partnership with the National Wildlife Federation and the reasons that you engage with programs in landscape architecture and architecture. Seems an odd thing for an environmental organization <laughs> to do sometimes. Oh my God. It's, it's about time is what I like to say. Um, and I really, I mean, I'd love to say, you know, I, I knew it was going to go there and I knew that Harvard would pay attention. I didn't at the time. Um, I just knew um, as a, um, you know, a funder of conservation um, for a long time. Um, that we had to break out of a very restrained box. Um, conservation had been very much, you know, the specialty of conservation biologists, um, ecologists, and they had taken their understanding of what nature was and what it needed and tried to set it apart from um, a world that they perceived, a human world, which they perceived to be a threat to that. Um, and so as wonderful as parks and protected areas are, um, they're ultimately not going to be the full solution. We will need them, but we will need also to change our relationship on the rest of the landscape with nature for us to get meaningful amounts of nature to persist into the future. And frankly, um, for you know, the life that you know, we, we enjoy right now to persist into the future. In order for that to happen, um, integration had to happen between how we live, how we relate to nature. And so, you know, this whole opportunity that came out of doing the design competition, getting engaged with architects, landscape architects, uh, designers is, you know, has, has begun to break out into that. And, um, you know, I, you know, when you ask a question about, you know, how are the students affected by, um, dealing with the wildlife as a client, 
I can tell you as a funder that you know the, the competition was back in 2011. At that time, uh, Neemri, who was the competition advisor, was uh, teaching at Harvard and um, you know, brought you know, the experience of the competition to uh, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard. And it was, it was new, it was exciting, and you know, they certain students certainly responded well to it, but they had never thought of it before. And um, when we went back for the Wild Ways course as clients last year, that had totally changed. It was a decade later, and a whole new generation of students were, were at Harvard, and they were all totally familiar with wildlife crossings and really interested in trying to pursue and, and expand on this field that was new, but not brand new to them. So it was a really, really exciting perception of uptake that had happened on that level. And, you know, I'm, I'm really thrilled to think that there's a decade of design um, professionals out there going through schools like Harvard that are now aware and really committed to, uh, to designing for nature and not, you know, just, you know, indifferent or worse against it. Um, so that part's been, you know, really, really exciting. Yeah, there's something there around like designing for fluid world. As I was reading, I think it was on your website, all of these interventions remind us that we're living in this constantly shifting, moving sea of beings and processes in life. And, you know, I think what you're describing is akin to when systems theory or complexity theory became um, or is starting to become part of core syllabus for people who are even younger than university, because it's that ability to have a mind that doesn't fragment or particularize and that can design a more holistic intervention. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say on top of, um, you know, our, our, nat- you know, our society's propensity to, um, to divide, specialize and linearize our thinking, um, which complexity theory um, and systems thinking has, um, has really challenged. Um, I think we're also in a, in, a, in a very unfortunate process of numbing. Um, and that has to do with the, with the very crisis that we've, we've created in biodiversity and climate change. Uh, you know, the proverbial frog that, you know, is slowly boiling to death isn't noticing because he's adapting, he or she is adapting its senses to, to the water as it gets warmer and warmer. And, you know, in that same way, um, people are getting, you know, more and more used to bad air quality, um, more expensive food, um, uh, less and less um, in nature um, around them without really noticing. And it's, it, it needs, we need a conscious effort to reverse that right now. Um, and I think that's a very, very dangerous aspect. I mean, you know, I think it's called scientifically a positive feedback where we are, you know, psychologically adapting to survive um, a crisis that ultimately we may not. And so this effort to um, try and bring awareness of, of other beings and bring kinship to other beings uh, to us again I think is absolutely vital and, you know, not just for wildlife crossings, but um, for the larger crises we face. Yeah, I'd agree completely. Uh, For years, we've listened to this false separation of the climate crisis from the biodiversity crash. And of course, they're fundamentally interrelated and likely exacerbated uh, by that relationship. And if nothing else, it is indeed a poly crisis that we face, including equity and who, who gets to be resilient. And for this reason, the, the discussions and the really discourse around kinship, uh, entanglements, coexistence, these are really uh, an important part of the vernacular and popular press right now, but also academically that we're seeing much more of an integration with human and animal studies, the environmental humanities with life sciences. 
And certainly at the time that I did my research degrees, you know, I, we were always rather proud, I think, as life scientists, that we were somehow objective and separate from the creatures that we observed. And this never sat well with me. And it, you know, was really a foray into complexity theory in the 1990s, which before it got taken over by the business schools, I would say, you know, it really had an incredible potential to, if not reshape, then influence significantly the life sciences in a way that I think has been helpful, not destructive, but very, very helpful. That is to say that, of course, we still need good reductionist science and science methods of observation, but that they have to be tempered with traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous ways of thinking and knowing, particularly in the territories and lands in which we work in North America, um, speaking just for, for ourselves in the context of ARC. These other ways of knowing are profoundly important in shaping how we relate to the road and its effects, how we understand and relate to the creatures that, you know, are are being run over on the roads is one thing, but also how to rethink and re-engage with design that privileges not just the human. And that, if anything, is a critically important part of addressing the, the, the crises we're in. We certainly can't solve it using the same tools that got us into the problem. And while reductionist science has its absolutely its useful place, it's limited in what it can tell us. And, you know, the observations of emerging phenomenon of, you know, relationships between communities, between wildlife communities is also something that has escaped our vision and notice until relatively recently. And so very, very, I would say, hopeful as well about the methods that we use to do this work, becoming more engaging and frankly, more relational. That need to, to bring more kinship and relationality across all disciplines is so key. I mean, it's the reason why I chose the name Life Rules for the podcast. It's, you know, can we think through and feel through the um, hearts, minds, eyes of other life? Nina Marie, what, what, what have you found works with your students, you know, the ones who initially might not have taken this, pers- this perspective before in terms of practices or tools or is there a certain, you know, you need to guide them through meditation first to be the mountain lion as it moves through the land or... Or, or can people kind of automatically switch into that multi, multi-species kinship lens? How, how, how do you bring people into it? I don't think I have to do very much. I think most people are by nature social beings and can relate to the vulnerability and plights of others if given the opportunity to do so. It's about extending that ability to be compassionate and have some humility to other beings outside of the human form. Uh, And most of the students who I see regularly are already incredibly emotionally intelligent. They're uh, very concerned with issues of equity, particularly coming out of COVID. They've had, I would say, a high degree of suffering and challenge, uh, like many people, but particularly so for students who struggled through the pandemic. They have emerged this side, uh, I would say, all of us with some varying mental health challenges of having uh, lived through three years on Zoom, maybe, but in a more practical way, uh, with a greater sense of empathy and care. And that's a very good place to start this type of work. And, you know, the easiest thing to do for most of us is to simply go for a walk outdoors. We do most of our, our class investigations out of doors where possible. We use multiple learning platforms, but a lot of that is experiential. It's hands-on, it's in the field, 
And of course, this is at a time when many universities have cut back their field programs, are reducing the opportunities for uh, travel work. And so we have to be somewhat creative. It's not lost on me that the two field courses I've just completed are at American private institutions. They're, they're not in large public schools, but in Canada, that's where my field ecology courses run. And, and certainly getting outside, even using social media as a strategy for observation in large public classes can be helpful. Yeah, I'd add to that, and I'll, I'll use the, the second eye, the storytelling eye. I'll go back to the story of, um, which in some ways Dean and Marie should tell about, you know, putting together the competition and among the other things she had to do was get, you know, a high profile jury. Um, so she uh, connected with MacArthur Genius engineer who become a, a jury member, uh, Ted Soli at HNTV, and, um, you know, explained the competition and asked if he'd be on the jury. He said, okay, well, send me more about this, maybe. Um, so she did. And um, he looked it over and got back to her very quickly and said, this is fascinating. I had no idea about this. This is amazing. I don't want to be on the jury. She said, oh, that's kind of a confusing response. And he said, no, I, I, I want to compete. Um, and um, I, oh, I wow. want to resolve nice. <laughs> this um, because this is a very serious problem and I want to address it. And that's ultimately what happened. Uh, Ted was part of a team with uh, Michael von Valkenberg and others um, that ultimately won the competition with their with their submission. Um, so it's kind of a you know a great story in itself. But the, really, the key thing is that this is a highly capable engineer um, who we got to know later, um, and among other things, you know, got to understand that he was kind of a Zen Buddhist, very well connected to uh, nature and the world through his beliefs, but had never found an expression for it in his profession. Um, and so the idea that he could actually apply his professional capacity to, um, a, you know, a problem, you know, to a value that he really held as a person personally very deeply was tremendously exciting. And that's why, you know, you know, it's another aspect of the competition that I really liked was that it, it was a way in which you could engage people in their professional capacities, in the middle of their lives, in their careers, where they really are, um, for better or worse, um, committed to the world that has caused so many problems, and then subvert that training um, in a positive way uh, so that it's broader, it's more inclusive, and it begins to um, address and hope to help to resolve uh, the crises that that, that same society, that same training has, uh, has precipitated. That, to me, is also um, a really really cool way in which this, uh, this approach has worked. Um, I do hope we can talk a little bit also about the fact that roads are continuing to be built um, and uh, that they are expanding into, into the rest of the world, into what's called the developing world or the global south and, and beginning to fragment areas of the world um, that are still intact and highly biodiverse. And, you know, that's, that's a continuing crisis. Um, but within that crisis, there's, there's also an opportunity. And Let's talk about that, um, you know, because I'm aside from doing this podcast, I run an ecology lab and I'm a conservationist. And, you know, as you see in these time lapse videos, the roads move in and then it's sort of this just like creeping development. And I lived in Mexico for a long time and maybe you guys have followed but the development of this Maya train that the current president wants to build all across yes. Yucatan. And it's just I mean, it's yeah, it's absolutely heartbreaking in so many ways. So I, I would love to touch on that. Um but first, Jeremy, just as you were speaking, the opportunity for professionals, whether it's, you know, I mean, honestly, any human, whether they're 14 or 50, 
to have an avenue to express their ecological values and um, and experiment with everything we've been talking about. I think this is why what you guys have both been doing in your own ways and together is so um, important uh, for people to know about, for, for this to inspire their own competitions or their own um, opportunities in their lines of work. And I would just ask, do you, are you aware of other areas inside of design or urban infrastructure or maybe we can go straight to the you know roads and developing or you know global south countries aside from the competitions that i'm going to list in the show notes and that maybe we'll talk to, talk about are there other things that people should have on their radar or ideas that you don't have enough time to be doing but wish that people could take on in this space i definitely do um and i mean it really goes back i mean i don't know if you're a fan of you know ministry for the future but you know the approach that um you know, robinson takes where you know he you know you you end up you know starting out with you know a ministry that's concerned with climate change and realizing it's kind of a ministry for everything because everything has to change in order to address the the crisis of uh, climate change and, and biodiversity so um on top of uh, the design world you know what about the legal world you know we certainly hear about countries where um ecologies um have have been you know you know designated as legal persons um, because you know, protection under the law is is essential if they're going to persist within the society that we have, which includes a legal system. Um, so there's there's huge opportunities there. The other one that you know I think is really important and actually I'm involved in more and more is finance. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, finance, certainly conservationists, um, you know, uh, facing the extraction industry, um, you know, have faced where you know they cobble together, you know pro bono lawyer to take on a mine and somehow the mine is able to um, afford the best and the brightest in the legal system. Um, and that's because they're financed <laughs> to an extraordinary degree. And, you know, all these nice pension funds that are in place to make sure that we can have, you know, comfortable lives after our working careers, um, you know, have for a long time enabled that. Um, and that's certainly beginning to change. Um, and there's a lot of screening now, which is good. Um, but particularly for biodiversity, there's a lot of proactive, positive um, finance, um, uh, you know, product um, invention and design that needs to happen. And I'm very, very interested in that. I'd agree. I, I think there are enormous uh, potentials. And if we rather lump design solutions or design strategies that are supportive of flourishing biodiversity under one category, whether they're in the European tradition called nature-based solutions or in the North American language of green infrastructure. These are infrastructural investments. They're human-made, whether conserved or designed, investments in a planetary future that has the right to flourish, the right to flourishing uh, I do a lot of work with the Biophilic Cities Network, for example, and, and flourishing is a, a key theme. And this helps us think beyond mere technical bandages for survival towards an ambition and an aspiration that we understand as human beings and can extend to other beings. So whether we're talking about green roofs, living walls, bioswales, green streets, or bird-safe glass, there are thousands of interventions that rely on design solutions and strategies for flourishing for other species. And I think it's a time where we really are beginning to assess these investments. So rather than just calculating the gray infrastructure costs of roads, bridges, pipelines, and sewers, we're now starting to 
get in line with our lending institutions, for example, that are beginning at long last to evaluate any project's uh, biodiversity impact. So not only are we not thinking about no net loss, but actually recovery, recovery and remediation, uh, rewilding. These are all terms that we're familiar with. I'd use the example of bird safe windows. Um, Toronto has North America's first regulation on green roofs and the first regulation on bird safe glass, both of which have found their ways into ordinances or bylaws at the municipal level. This means that cities actually have a profound impact on shaping built form. And that's where these investments happen, often in the purview of cities. So we don't necessarily need to think of sweeping legislation at the federal level or even the state and provincial level, but that cities are where this stuff happens. And it can happen in very small, but in really significant ways. We know, for example, that it's actually illegal to kill passerine songbirds or migratory birds under the Migratory Birds Act, which is North America wide. And we're starting to see legal action now. So people are upset that we've lost 40% of our neotropical songbirds or what are called passerines or migratory birds. And we're beginning to see legal cases come before the American and the Canadian courts where owners of buildings that have failed to mitigate will now face legal repercussions. So that's an example of a a step of of intolerance for our behaviors that in the past were somehow not appreciated or understood. While that's the flip side of creative design solutions, I think we'll also see routine enforcement, either financially or by legal mechanisms. Um, And I think that push and pull of creative design and liability enforcement side of things will, I hope, uh, be together a more powerful force. You know, I thank you both for these these messages of, of, of hope and examples, because you're right, like in the finance space, um, now we're having mandatory disclosures on um, different corporations' risks and dependencies and impacts on nature. In the previous season of the podcast, we had two episodes on the rights of nature. Actually, Jeremy, I'm a big fan of, of the rights of nature. I've been involved in some of that myself, which is the legal um, process which you described. And Nina Marie, as you say, like building regulations and so on. So I think it's easy to forget as cities become enshrouded in wildfire smoke. Um, that there is this kind of groundswell of hundreds of different approaches and initiatives that are moving towards this much more biophilic um, kinship, relationality-based interaction with with other species. And also that that's available for artists and designers and people who might not feel like they're, I'm not, I'm not a biologist, what can I do? I, I, I want to touch on what you mentioned, Jeremy, about roads encroaching into places they haven't encroached before and see if we can find a way to link this to uh, the design competition that, that that you all hosted, because on one hand, you could say, well, if roads will be built, so let's build safe passage. On the other hand, there's a counter argument which could be made, which is, you know, you're you're permitting something to happen because you're creating a slight bandaid on it, aka, you know, you're creating the, the wildlife passage, but it's enabling a road to be built. So in your in the in the solutions that you guys have funded and come across, they need the roads to be there and more roads will be built. How do you kind of face face that tension? Are there ways for no roads to be built and we just have the safe passage without the roads in the first place? That would be the ideal. Absolutely. 
And I think there's there was an interesting example. Um, uh, I, I went to a workshop um, in Indiana, uh, Indiana Dunes National Park, which is a very kind of rust belt post-industrial landscape, which incidentally almost has some protected, very interesting landscapes, you know, in a fragmented way inserted. And because of that legacy of, of, of industry, um, there were a lot of roads and railroads that, you know, ran through the park to service these industries. And uh, the park was asking us to come in and see if we could, you know, create some crossings to mitigate those, those roads. And uh, we ended up saying no, um, because if we do that, then we will, um, you know, we'll enshrine that road as a road forever. <laughs> um, far better not to build the crossings, but to actually look at recommissioning, as it were, those roads as linear pieces of wild infrastructure. You know, tear up the pavement, plant them, keep them going so that you can actually attach what is a fragmented park rather than create the crossings. So the crossings are great and they, you know, they do, you know, this wonderful job of, of mitigating, you know, a harm, which is a road. Um, and, but on the other hand, you know, if you can get around the road or decommission the road in this case, you know, that's even better. You're absolutely right. Um, that being said, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because roads are going to be built. Um, right now, the West and China are kind of in, a, in an arms race or an infrastructure race <laughs> to build um, um, roads um, in, in the developing world. Um, hopefully for the benefit to some degree to the developing world, but certainly to you know their benefit as well. And so it's hard to imagine stopping that. And so if we can't stop that, can we use the design approach that we've used with ARC along with the financial approach to at least mitigate it? And by financial, I mean... These roads are going to be developed by, you know, in the U.S. and the European side, development World Bank, European Development Bank, Asia Development Bank, etc. And then the Chinese have their counterparts. Could we work with those financial institutions to make them both aware of wildlife crossings as a solution and um, supportive and committed enough to them so that they will not release funding without criteria that includes mitigation for these new roads? If you're going to build you know, a kilometer of new road through you know, a wild biodiverse area, you absolutely have to build the mitigation structure in at the same time. Otherwise, no funding. Is that is that so, happening? Are you guys are you guys pushing we're, for that? Yeah, on, on a, you know, ARC is involved. Um, and, you know, we could talk a little bit about, I think I'll let Dean Marie talk about, you know, possible uh, workshop we'd like to do in Nepal to address um, a, uh, a nationwide highway that's being proposed. Oh, please do. That'll be very Probably yeah. will be built. But, you know, the idea of that, you know, I'll let you describe the workshop, but I'll just say the idea of that is to provide kind of an example of, you know, the need for mitigation, how it would look at scale um, to the World Bank and other financial institutions so that they get an idea of what they should ask for. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think I'd preface any conversation about uh, the global south or countries that are rapidly urbanizing to say that uh, none of us, and certainly not uh, my work in my lab, we're not experts in those countries and territories, nor in their uh, land rights. But what we do offer is a working set of methods that have been tested through a decade of research in how to bring uh, multiple stakeholders together, and in particular, uh, working methods that involve uh, soft system sciences, complex systems, thinking about the relationship between people, roads, wildlife, agriculture, um, and movement. And so that's the type of approach that we would, we would be bringing. We're not uh, in the habit of or in the business of going into uh, 
other countries to offer design solutions, but rather to work with uh, local experts on the ground to facilitate a kind of creative design uh, conceptualization through working together. Uh, we're particularly interested in uh, working in the Triarch region of Nepal and India, which of course has some of the world's highest biodiversity and some of the world's poorest people in the same area. And we know that over the next 50 years, uh, we're going to see billions of dollars spent on linear infrastructure. Um, the, the, the numbers vary depending on which countries you're speaking about. But in particular, we're thinking that you know we'd like to begin to speak to folks on the ground about how to rethink the road in the most broadest, in the broadest sense, how to rethink the road. However, there's already investment on the ground in the Pan-Asian highway that will link uh, through the foothills of the Himalayas or the Triarch landscape, a tropical savanna ecosystem, basically 14 protected areas that already exist through India and Nepal. And within the Himalayan foothills and nearby lowlands, this is about 5 million hectares. It's a global biodiversity hotspot. And there are, of course, some of the world's most endangered mammals, including the Bengal tiger, the Indian rhinoceros, the Asian elephant, and of course, many other species of wildlife, not nearly as charismatic, but arguably as every bit as important to those ecosystems and with those concomitant rights to flourishing. It's got about 500 species that we know of birds alone, many of which are endangered. And so this particular ecosystem, which is transboundary, has 14 national parks, I believe. It's one of the 34 hottest biodiversity spots, if that makes sense. And so when the roads are thinking of, uh, when the roads are being built through this region, they're already going to go through areas that are deemed worthy of protection. And that does demand that we rethink the road entirely, whether it's lifting it, burying it, avoiding it altogether, uh, circumventing it, thinking about rail infrastructure. And those uh, types of questions are best asked in tandem with local experts who are also well aware of the problem and the need for potential solutions that are probably more uh, economic to think about at the outset rather than mitigating after the fact. We know that mitigation after the fact is the less, much less desirable option, but this does demand fairly sophisticated communications up front. And it also means a network of, of people engaged uh, in that region with whom we would work directly as opposed to uh, a kind of flyover approach to conceptual design that gets offered up and that's not really, I think, sustainable for anyone. We're looking at uh, working together with re research partners, but also aid agencies in a way that brings together opportunities for co-creative, co-produced, uh, locally sourced design solutions. And that's something that we hope to see initiated over the next year or so. We're in the early stages of planning right now. We developed the working methodology over five, I guess about eight years actually of research together with ARC and more than 30 agency partners in various locations across North America. So the conditions are quite different. The ecologies are very different. But what's the same is that we need to reconcile our, our addiction to the road and the way in which we've approached design, which has only ever been for one thing, and that's been the human vehicle, <laughs> the human the human person within a vehicle. Uh, and I think that this is a, a time when we're really th th rethinking transportation broadly, but and very specifically in these locations that will have lasting impact. So to link what you just shared with, with Jeremy's comment on finance earlier, 
is it more expensive to build roads below or above? Um, because if if we're not pricing nature and, and it, it's a constant quandary whether we should be pricing nature or not for reasons we don't have time to get into here, but let's say that, you know, these ecosystems currently don't necessarily have a value or they have a value when they're cut down and, you know, turned into two by four logs or something like this, or you're, um, you know, we have illegal wildlife trade, but pristine ecosystems right now, aside from their carbon content and maybe some biodiversity might not have an exact quote unquote price. And so I wonder if you'll face opposition because it's cheaper um, for the human system to just build the road in the conventional way, even though obviously all the externalities are more expensive, but we don't pay the true cost of anything. Um, so is this more expensive and is there a way to circumvent that kind of naysayer or counter um, argument that, that you may come across? Well, I'll take a crack at that first and then turn it over to Jeremy, who does more work in the finance field. I'd say that, of course, uh, expensive is a relative term. What do you mean by expensive and who's doing the accounting? It all depends on the accounting that you do. And, you know, first, I'd also, I'd also say that I don't, wouldn't use the word pristine. Uh, that's a strangely value-laden term for ecosystems true, true. that have long Maximally been... Maximally expressed. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I mean, it, it's yeah. important because I hear you. the ecosystems that we're talking about are home to people um, and have mm -hmm. been for millennia. People have a very good sense of how to live within that ecosystem um, in a way that allows them to uh, flourish, not necessarily um, extract. And it's the, the corporations who come in with roads that are doing the extracting usually. I think the, the, em the emphasis here is on uh, valuing something that has already been valued enough to protect. With 14 protected areas in a well-established global biodiversity hotspot, I'd argue the value is clear. It's a question of what the what value the road would bring and how to assess that. So part of it is a different kind of an accounting. And we're starting to see that with not only no net loss assessments, but banks unwilling to invest in projects that cause uh, biodiversity loss. And we have an opportunity to do recovery here and strategically place roads that uh, bring value to people and also uh, protect areas that have 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 assessed ecological or social value. Jeremy, I know there are other mechanisms that we're thinking about as well, and you may wish to speak to those. Yeah, and I'll keep it fairly general. I mean, I think that, you know, it's certainly much cheaper to mitigate a road while you're constructing it than retrofit it, um, which is a key savings, you know, or opportunity that would go into um, getting them done um, in the first place uh, with road building, um, ongoing road building in the world. Yes, ultimately, it will cost more. And, you know, is the value there? Well, how do we assess the value? You know, my head could explode on that one, frankly. Um, it's in many ways so obvious um, to me. Of course, there's value there. And the way I've kind of compressed it in my mind, and this is, you know, a very specific definition of the word, is, you know, well, how valuable is the future to you? I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, if we do not, have, if we cannot flourish with nature, we don't have a future or a future that, you know, we'd really like to contemplate. So do you want to pay something to make sure that happens or not? And I think that's not really occurred to people. Um, and, and even, you know, even the notion of money to me um, is, you know, is getting to be a fascinating one because this idea that you accumulate money so that you have, you know, security in the form of something that's, you know, liquid and convertible into anything you might need in the future depends on there being that future. 
And that's what we're facing right now. We don't get that future. That money's going to be worthless. So I think we've got the wrong end of the stick at the moment. Yeah, it's like a topsy-turvy question. You know, I'm, 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 also an, I'm also an investor and I'm often asked, well, what's the risk profile of some of your impact investments? And I, I say something very similar, Jeremy. I say, well, there's more of a risk of inaction where your money won't be worth anything because we're living in a hellish world than some kind of calculated risk on your ROI. It's just we're asking the wrong kinds of questions because of short-term maximization of a very narrow range of values and variables. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious, as you work in some of these geographies with governments that have possibly, I'm not quite sure, but more constrained budgets, how the issue of cost will come up um, and ways that, that that can intelligently be circumvented. I um, I want to respect that we've reached the reached the end of um, the time of the podcast. There's a lot more to ask, but um, but I do want to be respectful of your time. So, just just from both of you, I'd love to hear. There's a wide range of people who listen to this podcast, and some of them work in finance, some are designers, as many different kinds of people. For those who want to engage more specifically into your field of work, Nina Marie, I know that you um, you're running your the lab and that you have your courses at Harvard and otherwise, but this isn't as commonplace as I would like it to be. And Jeremy, um, I know that you're the trustee of land, these large land connectivity organizations, but how can people find resources and get involved and get active? Is it joining your courses, your classes, or uh, what are resources for people who are listening? I ask everyone to have a look at the Biophilic Cities Network, which is a global network of cities connecting with nature. And you may find a city near you that is ripe and ready for a, a new set of connections with nature. We hope that you'll follow along. You can also follow the work that I do at ecologicaldesignlab.ca. That's Ecological Design Lab. And we're housed at Toronto Metropolitan University, where I'm a professor of urban and regional planning and the director of the lab. I also have an appointment at this moment at Harvard University in the Graduate School of Design. And you can follow the work that we do by looking at the Wildways project, which you'll find listed in the Graduate School of Design. We'll have a new publication out probably next month on this season's work. And of course, arcsolutions.org, which Jeremy will talk a little bit more about. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely um, speaking to anyone who's out there in the design world or is you know involved in a project where they would like to mitigate a road, I would encourage them to reach out to ARC and, you know, certainly share and uh, and perhaps learn from our network as to how they might make it for the best possible outcome there. Um, and beyond that, I'd go back to the earlier part of our conversation so that anybody who's listening to this, who feels that, you know, they're in a profession, you know, um, and it can be anything in this, in this world that, you know, certainly, um, you know, makes them a livelihood, but does not necessarily express their full values to look hard at how they might adapt that profession to meet those aspirations because it's, it's desperately needed. Um, I think it's ultimately uh, much more meaningful for the people who, who seek them out and uh, it will collectively help to adapt and change our society uh, and our economy to, um, to something that is much more responsive, much more aware and caring of nature and ultimately um, will contribute to, um, you know, the future. I think we all, hope that we will have. 
Most of our professions actually have code of conduct or a code of ethics. Certainly the engineers association, uh, architects, landscape architects, planners, just like lawyers and physicians all have a code of ethics and a code of conduct. And I think that's a very good place to start, actually, for engagement with nature, for entanglement and coexistence with other species. We can look to our professional organizations and really take a hard look at our codes of ethics. And are we embodying a relational ecology or a right to flourishing in our codes of ethics and our codes of conduct? It's a good place to start and a good place to end. <laughs> that's that's super interesting. It's like the rights of nature, but inside of professional um professional credences. Indeed. Jeremy, me and Marie, guys, thank you so much for this. It's been a really just inspiring and also practical conversation, which I really like when those things come together. Um, so I'm just so grateful that you're both in the world doing what you're doing and bringing this hope and also just like flourishing to, to other species. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to join this and, 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 and thank you very much for the focus you take with this uh, particular podcast. I think it's a really interesting one and important. Thank you. That makes me happy to hear. Thank you so much. So that was Nina Marie Lister and Jeremy Guff speaking with us about, in Nina Marie's words, these structures of hope that can also be used to capture the public imagination and make the invisible visible. It should not be acceptable to us that wildlife suffer as a result of human urbanization development. And I find it inspiring to imagine that a troop of designers and planners are going to programs like the ones described here today in order to make wildlife the client and themselves learning how to reimagine and re-embody the perspectives of multiple communities of other creatures. I think this is a very intriguing way of being in relationship to the land because it requires observation, deep listening, being able to sense movement in new ways, and ask how other species can flourish. All things that you know I advocate for on this podcast. As a closing note, let's remember that this indeed is a continuing challenge. Nina Marie mentioned her upcoming work in the Himalayan foothills and the Triarch landscape. And in researching this episode, I learned that an additional 25 million kilometers of roads are expected to be built in the next 30 years, many of them as massive transportation schemes in tropical areas, hence where there's the highest biodiversity. This asks us to expand our view and realize that these shared spaces are as essential to conservation as traditional protected lands and parks. This asks us to rethink the road entirely, to design new models of wildlife refuge, and contemplate even crazy things, like how we can move structures in the future when climate envelopes shift as temperatures change. There's so much to be done, and I actually find that quite exciting, as the process of the designing itself is what is going to be changing our minds and worldviews. So that's it for me today. Thank you for tuning in as ever. I hope that this episode might change in some small way how you move through space and perceive the flows of creatures across the Earth's landscapes look out for some beautiful bonus content from the podcast over the month of July to accompany your summer adventures. <laughs> Lots of love and see you next time.